Luke 9, 21. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It occurred to me not long ago that the New Testament reads like a split-screen TV. I think all of you here would be familiar with a split-screen, two sides of the screen. One side can be talking to the other, and one side can be in America, and the other side can be in some foreign country across the ocean. Two screens. And uh, this speaks to me of two universes. Actually, on one side of the screen is our universe that we live in, walk and talk, and live daily. On the other side of the screen is what I call a parallel universe, two universes, a parallel universe. The other universe, the other side of the screen, is very close to us. And um, it's basically right alongside of us. And Jesus had a name for that parallel universe. He called it the kingdom of God. His entire ministry was about that parallel universe. The Sermon on the Mount, the characteristics and qualities of character that define citizenship in the kingdom of God. His parables, parable of the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like his entire ministry about that parallel universe we call and he called the kingdom of God. Luke says that after the resurrection, for 40 days, Jesus spent teaching his followers concerning the kingdom of God. Now, let me illustrate this. First of all, in the practice of baptism, we Christians practice immersion. It's really the only true form uh, of baptism. It's the reenactment, the burial of, uh, of Christ, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. In the water, we're baptized representing that experience of our Lord. When we come up out of the water, what happens? Well, not really anything happens. There's no thunder or lightning occurring. We're really just all wet. But on the other side of the screen, something wonderful happens. We are cleansed. We are purified. We immediately become citizens in the kingdom of God forever. In a little bit, we will uh, participate in a communion service. We'll take a little piece of unleavened bread and some fruit of the vine, and together we'll participate. And what will happen? Well, really not very much. There's no thunder or lightning that's going to occur. But on the other side of the screen, something wonderful occurs. A miracle of cleansing. And on the other side of that screen, someone is watching. And he sees us participate and he he says, You have done as I have asked. You have remembered me. Now on down the road, one of these days... 
Since you have obeyed and remembered me, I will remember you. Split screen TV. And there's some leakage between these two parallel universes. Every once in a while, a visitor will come over from the other side. Uh, Joseph, for example, will be able to dream dreams and see into that other side. John, in the book of Revelation, sees into that kingdom and come back, <clears throat> comes back to talk about it. The Apostle Paul also describes his experience in that parallel universe. And he said it's beyond description. And he came back and he said... Wonder upon wonder, I can't even find words <clears throat> that adequately describe it. And then we have the enormously significant, the catastrophic breakthrough when Jesus Christ comes over from that other side and joins us and walks among us in our shoes. In all my life, I don't think I've ever experienced a period of time when there was more political conflict, cultural wars, than are occurring right now in our world. Torn apart. There are more wars right now on planet Earth than ever in the history of the world. Political and cultural wars. You know, but I thought to myself, Jesus was born right and carried out his ministry right in the middle of political and cultural and religious wars, if you please. His own religion, Judaism, fragmented into pieces practically with Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots, the Herodians, the Hellenists, and the Sicarii. There was a totalitarian dictator on the throne in Rome. Taxation had been levied upon his people to the point where the nation was practically bankrupt. The most powerful religious leaders in the world of Jesus' day were out to silence him, kill him if they had opportunity. And yet, in three and a half years, in three and a half years, Jesus unleashed the most powerful movement in the history of our world. We are Americans, you and I, most everyone here, I'm sure. But our deep citizenship is on the other side of that screen in the kingdom of God. And so take heart, my brothers and sisters. The New Testament teaches the war has already been fought and won. The good guys win. So goes the book of Revelation. My wife uh, was reading a book recently, and she told me it, uh, in the book she was reading, a greeting card was described. And the greeting card had on the front of it a, sad, a picture of sad face of a dog. And underneath that sad-faced dog were these words, failure and disappointment are life's greatest teachers. And you opened it up, and it said, what a stupid system. <laughs> but there's truth in that, isn't there? Some of the heartache and disappointment of our lives become our greatest teachers of patience and, and hope. James S. Stewart's words, I think, in his book, The Heralds of God, were never more relevant <clears throat> than they are right now. Let me read them for you. 
He says, in this enormously critical time, human hearts are bombarded with fierce temptations, old securities wrecked, preconceptions banished forever, when history itself is being torn in two, and no man can predict the shape of things to come. The church needs people who, knowing the world around them and knowing the Christ above them and within, will set the trumpet of the gospel to their lips and proclaim his sovereignty and his all-sufficiency. What does it mean to pick up your cross daily and follow him? Let me tell you what it means. It means taking the gospel of Jesus Christ right into the face of antagonism and the, right into the face of the enemy. It's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, the best news that's ever come, his resurrection, into the marketplace, into the classrooms, into the workplace, wherever we go, if at least by, not by life, then by words. There is a sad simplicity in the gospel that describes the death of Christ. After that, they had mocked him and scourged him. They led him away to Golgotha, and there they crucified him. It all began in that arrest in the garden. Here is the master in prayer. He is arrested as a criminal in the middle of prayer. Why would anyone want to crucify Jesus? In that moment, it appeared as though Judas was heading up the event. He was engaged with the most powerful crowd of religious and military forces you could muster. As a matter of fact, Andy Warhol, uh, the American artist, has described this as 15 minutes of fame. Each of us, Warhol says, sometime in our life, we do something or something happens to us that should be in the headlines. It's our 15 minutes of fame. And we hit the headlines and then all of a sudden we sink back into oblivion. Well, Judas leads what John describes as a cohort of soldiers. These are Romans armed to the teeth. How many of them? 600 comprise a Roman cohort. 600 of them. And, but it wasn't just the Roman cohort. Along with that 600 Roman soldiers were the temple guard, many of them also armed and ready. And besides these two groups was the crowd, John says. All of them armed to the teeth with torches, swords, clubs. Judas had failed to inform that group that his rabbi was a pacifist. He was a non-combatant. He never shouldered a weapon of any sort. Why all of this power? And here is Judas parading in his supreme moment, leading the crowd, John says, his 15 minutes of fame. And then we know the consequences of Judas' life. <clears throat> and Jesus said in that moment, if I chose, he said, I could summon 12 legions of angels. You know how many that is? It's 72,000 by Roman legion count. 72,000 against 600 Roman soldiers, the odds would not be in favor 
of the Roman soldiers if Jesus had chose to do that. And then came the kangaroo trials. Three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. You had the Jewish trials, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, the Roman trials, Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then Jesus is turned over to the crowd. But that night, during that night, I don't know how many, but I know there were many Jewish laws were broken in the trial of Jesus. He was denied due process, which the Jewish law required. Lying witnesses were brought in to testify against him, violating Jewish law. He was denied defense counsel, violating Jewish law. He was charged with the uh, threat to destroy the temple, which was a false charge. Again, breaking Jewish law. And then blasphemy, which he had never committed against Jewish law. The trial was in a private home instead of in a law court, breaking the Jewish law, and on and on. Then came the Roman trials. Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. Again, false charges, only this time the charges are changed from blasphemy to treason. They want treason because that's a high crime. That's for capital punishment, and with the help of Rome now, we can kill him. Our Jewish law wouldn't. Who was in control? Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, the priest, Judas, Herod, Pilate. None of them. Not one of them was in control. Peter got it right later on the day of Pentecost when he said to that crucifying crowd in the key point in his sermon, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did by God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know. You, by the hands of lawless men, did crucify and slay. But God has raised him from the dead. That beautiful phrase. After the trial, the house of Annas was destroyed. Caiaphas, the high priest, was deposed and died on an island in the Mediterranean. Pilate was exiled and committed suicide. Herod died in exile in Spain. And Jerusalem would fall 37 years later. The Romans, a Roman historian, has written this 37 years after the resurrection. Rome came in and conquered and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus had predicted. But a Roman historian said, the Romans ran out of space for crosses on which they were crucifying those Jewish captives. Think about it, 37 years. That means some of the very people who had been at the foot of the cross and cried crucify him now are being crucified on the very same type crosses they wanted the master to experience. A few years ago, I preached a sermon. It was a Palm Sunday. And... um, I studied the passage again, and I found something there I had never noticed before. Now, I'd, I'd had classes in Greek and Hebrew, and I didn't know there were two words, two different Greek words in the New Testament 
for wept. John eleven thirty five. everyone knows, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept at the graveside of Lazarus, his very dear friend. And there's one Greek word for that experience, Jesus wept. But there's another word at another place. It's at the triumphal entry. Jesus has just come from Bethany over the mountaintop. It's just about a 20-minute walk from Bethany into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday, and Jesus pauses on that mountain as he looks at the city of Jerusalem. And the crowd around them is celebrating. They're anticipating their rescue. They're expecting him to issue a cry of victory. I've come here to save you. Well, that was true, but not in the sense they were thinking. And instead of talking about celebrating the victorious release of Jerusalem, he begins to describe its destruction. It's going to be completely demolished. And the Bible said when he saw Jerusalem, that he had wished he could have gathered under his wings as a hen doth her brood, but she would not. The Bible says he wept. Only this time it uses a different word. He sobbed. When he saw that a city that would reject him would suffer what they were going to suffer. The cross of Jesus Christ, we pick it up daily because it is a life-changing event. Before he died, a guy by the name of Johnny Hart... um, There you have it. In a series of cartoons, Johnny Hart always had a lot of cartoons. And every once in a while, he would post a religious cartoon. Sometimes it was Jewish, sometimes it was Christian, sometimes it was Judeo-Christian. And he'd get in big trouble sometimes when he would publish a religious one. But, uh, uh, go on. I want you to see what one of my favorites of his is because it's so fitting at this point in my sermon. It's entitled The Suffering Prince. Picture yourself tied to a tree, condemned of the sins of eternity. Then picture a spear parting the air, seeking your heart to end your despair. Suddenly a knight in armor of white stands in the gap betwixt you and its flight. And shedding his armor of God for you, he bears the lance that runs him through. His heart has been pierced so that yours may beat, and the blood of his corpse washes your feet. Picture yourself in raiment of white, Cleansed by the blood of the lifeless night, never to mourn the prince who was downed, for he is not lost, it is you who are found. Friday was cataclysmic. <clears throat> we, call it, we call it Good Friday. Yeah. It's coming up very soon, you know. It's too big for words. 
God Almighty informs the world who really is orchestrating this event. One Annas Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, for sure. And uh, <clears throat> from the parallel universe, God intervenes in that moment, in that dynamic moment on Good Friday, to let people know he's in on this. He's paying attention. The Bible says the heavens blushed. The sun covered her face. The temple veil was split in half from top to bottom. Rocks cracked open and split. Tombs, tombs were open. And saints, dead saints, rose to walk in the streets of Jerusalem. The earth quaked and shook beneath their feet. All nature stood horror-stricken as the Son of God expired upon that cursed tree, bearing the derision of the chief priests and scribes who declared others he saved, himself he could not save, not realizing they were really speaking a truth. He couldn't save others without losing his own life. Come down from the cross, they said. Do something spectacular. We'll follow you if you'll come down from the cross. He knew it was a lie. It was the same lie that had been delivered on <clears throat> in the period of his temptations. Jump from the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus. Do something spectacular and we'll follow you. He knew they wouldn't. It was a lie from hell and he knew it. And a Roman soldier merely carrying out his Roman duty before the spectacle of it all, God speaking loudly in nature cries out, truly, this was the Son of God. God, you see, devised description. Sometimes words are not big enough to describe an event. And I sense this when I read that text in the New Testament. They need bigger words. This is illustrated so well. Let's have the next slide. Years ago, I, <clears throat> I came across this. I, I thought, I identify with this. This guy was trying to describe the indescribable. And I want you to hear uh, how he went about it. He said, architects have strained their powers to the utmost and have conceived of no cathedrals great enough for his worship. Painters holding a cargo of wonder in their brushes have painted no pictures beautiful enough to depict him. Sculptors searching through all the rock quarries of the earth have found no marble white enough for his brow. Musicians making surging seas of tones subservient to their batons have created no composition sweet enough to sing his hymns of praise. Orators whose words are like flights of golden arrows reach only to the outskirts of his grandeur. Poets sweeping their thoughts together in poems and dramas measure him but feebly. Writers wielding pens which seem to be fountainheads of Niagara's express only a meager measure of the honor that is due him. I like the words of the poet who wrote, Oh, who shall paint him? Let the sweetest chords that ever trembled on the harps of heaven be discord. Let the chanting seraphims whose anthem is eternity be dumb for praise and wonder and adoration all melt into muteness ere they soar to thee. Theme of countless words. Years ago, I <clears throat> preached a sermon in our college chapel in Lincoln on Abraham and Isaac. I got it wrong. I... Uh, I saw Isaac as the perfect prototype of Jesus Christ. I mean, it really looks like he is. 
the only begotten of his father, the son his father loved, the son of promise. Isaac carries on his own back the wood for the sacrificial offering, the burnt offering, the Hebrews called it. Uh, that Hebrew word is uh, halah. We get our word holocaust from that. It described the death of six million Jews during World War II and the German Hitler Holocaust where 6,000 Jews were burned in the furnaces. The Jews considered themselves burnt offerings. Halah. And uh, <clears throat> he is going to be the burnt offering, Isaac is. Uh, but <clears throat> three days from Beersheba to Jerusalem, and on the way, Isaac turns to Father Abraham and asks, Father Abraham, uh, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Now, most of your translations will read like this. The Lord will provide for himself the sacrifice. That little word for is not in that verse. It is not in the Hebrew text. That Hebrew text reads like this. The Lord will provide himself the sacrifice. And then we know how uh, <clears throat> the hand of Abraham is stayed and Isaac is set free. His bonds are cut. And uh, you see, God didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham. And it's interesting in that text where Abraham says to his two servants, you wait here. We are going over here and worship and we will return to you. That's resurrection, isn't it? One man has said resurrection in the Old Testament is like flashes of lightning against a midnight sky. There were two sacrifices. Abraham was offering his son as a sacrifice and Isaac was offering himself. And then God says, do not lay your hand on the boy. I know now that you fear God. And then a ram caught in the thicket is taken and that ram is offered in Isaac's place. Here is the point. You and I are Isaac. Jesus Christ is that ram. For you and me, there's a substitute. But for him, there's no... And why a ram? Let me tell you why a ram. A ram was very expensive. And God wanted to know that sin he wanted Israel to know that sin was very costly. One man says, sin takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. There are three hopeless faces that are brought into resurrection hope. I'd like to briefly just look at them. Uh, Mary, Thomas, and those two pilgrims going back to home on the way to Emmaus. First, Mary. 
in the garden. She's there early uh, to anoint the body of Jesus, but he's gone, and there's no body. And thinking him to be the gardener, Jesus shows up, and why are you weeping? Why, whom are you seeking? Oh, she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've placed him. And all Jesus says is, Mary. And she turns and recognizes and cries out, Rabboni, which is to say, my master. Next slide. There it is. Rabboni. Uh, The next is Thomas, the doubter. Thomas says, unless I see and unless I touch, I need scientific evidence if you expect me to believe. I want tactile evidence. I want visual evidence. And then it's Thomas who, when he experiences the resurrected Christ, drops and cries out, my Lord and my God. But my favorite story in the New Testament is in Luke 24. It's the account of those two pilgrims who leave Jerusalem going back uh, to Emmaus. And Jesus joins them. Uh, they don't recognize him. And uh, he, uh, he asks them, uh, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And Luke says, they stood with their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, listen to this, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days. And Jesus says, what things? Oh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers of our people handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That means he took them back to the Pentateuch. You start with Moses, you start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You take them through the major prophets and the minor prophets and he showed them how on page after page after page in the Old Testament it's talking about him. The entire Old Testament is about him. How could we miss that? Oh, how I wish I had a copy of that sermon. And then... They finally explain in the breaking of the bread, did not our hearts burn within us as we walked with him in the way and talked with him and he exposed himself to us. But I want you to notice the most, I call it the most ironic question in the Bible. Are you only a visitor here in Jerusalem and don't know the things that have been going on here this past few weeks? They thought they knew. (laughs) They didn't know. They thought he didn't know, but he did know. And he also knew that they thought they knew, but didn't know. In God's great universe, Jesus Christ was the only one who knew what had happened in Jerusalem. 
The disciples didn't know. His own family didn't know. The Romans didn't know. The high priest didn't know. He was the only one who knew. J.R. Tolkien, probably the greatest folk writer of our time, Maybe you've seen The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, very famous award-winning movies, shows. Tolkien refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ as God's eucatastrophe. He coins the word. You won't find that word in the dictionary, eucatastrophe. Translated, it's a catastrophic blessing. And he, he says, great literature is literature that really speaks to the deepest yearnings of our heart. When it really gets inside our hopes and our dreams, that describes great literature. And let me give you just a couple quick illustrations. One is uh, the Sleeping Beauty, the story of Sleeping Beauty, the beautiful princess who is seduced by the wicked witch Maleficent, drinks the evil potion, and is in a coma, a deep sleep, brought back to the castle... And uh, all of the uh, witches and the sorcerers of the kingdom are summoned to the castle to awaken the sleeping princess. But nothing avails. They can't wake her up. It's Good Friday in the castle of gloom and death. But during the night, from outside the castle comes a prince who comes into the castle and plants the kiss of life on the sleeping princess. And she is... Awakened, and there is a celebration, and the citizens of the kingdom are summoned to the castle for a celebration. It's Easter morning in the castle. Or the story of uh, one of my favorites, uh, the story of Pinocchio. Uh, Pinocchio wants a son, and so he makes this little wooden boy. And miraculously, that little wooden boy takes on life, and it's like he has a son. But the little wooden boy is swallowed by the terrible whale, Monstro, who sneezes him up on the shore, and, and the broken boy is brought back to Geppetto's house, and Geppetto grieves the loss of his son. It's Good Friday in Geppetto's house. But during the night, a heavenly visitor comes in and paths a kiss of life on little Pinocchio. And he awakens, and Geppetto celebrates because no longer is he just a wooden boy. He's a real living son. And it's Easter morning in Geppetto's house. But they're just stories. But we wish they were true. We wish something like that would really happen. And Tolkien says, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that happens. It breaks into history. The deepest yearnings and longings and hopes of our soul become historical fact. Take up your cross. Take it into the workplace. Bear it with the witness of the transforming value it's had in your life. One more illustration. Several years ago, I attended a conference in St. Louis, Missouri. It was a conference of college and university administrators. 
After the banquet that evening, the main speaker was the um, president of Asbury Theological Seminary. He said, the students of Asbury College or Asbury Seminary this week will not have to write down in their diary anything about this week. They will never forget it as long as they live. We had a chapel speaker this week on our campus, he said, from Romania, a Christian pastor from Romania who had been arrested by the communists, who had spent eight months under interrogation and torture by the, uh, uh, the Romanian communist guard. He said he got to the place where he couldn't take anymore and he was just ready to cave in. And he said a message came to him, read. And he thought, that's stupid. I don't have anything to read. They burned all my books. But I had one book. He said it was a book by E. Stanley Jones entitled Abundant Living. And in that book was a chapter set aside, Life in the Cross. And it described how Jesus Christ took upon himself all the sin and the suffering and the humiliation of the world and he bore it to Calvary. And he said he felt a new sense of courage. And the next morning he said he went before his interrogators and they said to him, well, pastor, we can't straighten you out so we're just going to have to kill you. And he said, you have your ultimate weapon. Your ultimate weapon is to kill me. But I have my ultimate weapon. My ultimate weapon is is to die because if you kill me you will sprinkle my blood on tapes of my sermons that will be played again and again and again all across Romania and he said that night word went through the underground the pastor wants to be a martyr well we're not stupid we're not going to kill him and they set him free Next slide. And when he, he said, when he stepped out into the sunlight of freedom, the words of Jesus came to him He who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up the cross daily. It'll make all the difference in the world.